how do we manage the the psychological and the sociological stressors of being overtrained so that the athletes and and coaches and parents and everyone can buy into that together to get the health back and because when the health is there the athlete can come back to ripping legs off this is a new angle and i'm your host justin angle marketing professor at the university of montana college of business This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. Today we bring you part two of our Healthy Sports series. In part one, we tried to define the problem. Now here in part two, we ponder some solutions. And to do that, I'm joined by two important players in the Missoula athletics community. Courtney Babcock is a former collegiate and Olympic runner and now runs a highly successful coaching practice with a focus on wellness and longevity. For a variety of reasons we'll talk about today, Courtney was able to successfully navigate the risks of an elite athletic career. Dr. Rob Amrine is a sports medicine specialist and an expert on the emerging science of overtraining. He's also typical of many Missoulians. He leads a busy, successful life while still crushing on the bike. Courtney and Rob share some important wisdom that I'm excited for you to hear right now. Okay, so we're here today with Dr. Rob Amrine, Courtney Babcock, talking about healthy sport. This is the second of our two-part series. So if you missed the first part, please go back and listen to last week's uh, episode where we sort of set the stage here. But Rob, Courtney, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Justin. Uh, Thanks for being here too, Courtney. Yeah, thanks both of you. Yeah, I'm excited to to dive in a little bit today. Yeah. So the general framing of this series, you know, last week we had a great conversation with Leah and Jesse and Anya kind of trying to define the problem that we're facing culturally, um, societally, like what is, you know, what is the purpose of sport? What defines a healthy relationship with sport and what are some of the challenges we're facing? Those are big kind of amorphous topics. What I'd like to get into today with the two of you is, is a little bit more along the lines of how do we how do we move forward from here? How do, how do we make improvements? And a topic that came up a lot in the conversation last week was this concept of overtraining. And, you know, Rob, maybe we'll kick it to you as, as a medical doctor who practices in this space, uh, to the extent there are experts in the concept of overtraining, you are one. Tell us what it is and maybe tell us why it's so difficult to understand. Yeah, that's a a good question, Justin. Um, And actually, we've had the opportunity to chat about this before. And one of the big things about overtraining is what is the definition or what is the verbiage that we use? Historically, we had this concept of overtraining syndrome, uh, which was defined as as doing more than what your body can adapt to and causing a, a degradation of the body or a breakdown of the body. And there is concepts of overreaching, but those those titles have kind of fallen out of favor over the last few years to a more uh, inclusive topic called relative energy deficiency in sport. And this has a, a, a very fancy kind of concept name and, and uh, def- definition, but basically means that when you participate in sport, you don't feel yourself adequately so that your body is always kind of running a little bit on empty which causes massive amounts of changes in your body that lead to poor performance and unfortunately poor health. 
Yeah, so Rob, that sounds pretty simple, right? Just eat as much as you need to eat to fuel your body's demands. But you know, the body's not like an automobile. Like I don't have a gas gauge that tells me um, clearly, you know, the fuel lights on. You got to refuel. Like, how, why do people get into trouble with this? It can't be. It's it's got to be more complicated uh, to the from the athlete's perspective than 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 that. Yeah, you're exactly right. I think that uh, every consultation and conversation I've had about overtraining and relative energy deficiencies usually has a, a fair number of expletives uh, coming from the athlete because it becomes very frustrating. And, and our biggest issue that we have is, number one, defining what we mean by the terminology. And number two is finding accurate and precise testing that actually can say, yeah, you got the disease or you don't, you know, it's easy to get an x-ray of a broken femur and say, sorry, dude, you got a broken femur, you're out for X period of time. But I don't really have a good test at this time that I can use to really tell somebody that they've overdone it, that they're cooked. And, and that's super frustrating to an athlete to have a nebulous diagnosis that is still being debated and not have an objectifiable broken piece of them. And so you're exactly right. It's extremely complicated and it becomes psychologically and sociologically extremely frustrating to an athlete. Indeed. So, you know, Courtney, you've competed at the highest level of, of sport, you know, and done so, uh, you know, with success and failure, but also been able to kind of avoid some of these pitfalls of overtraining. I mean, we were talking before we started recording, you've, you've certainly had injuries and maybe those injuries contributed to being able to avoid overtraining, but, but maybe talk about your personal compass um, with training. How did you make, how did you go about making choices of what was enough, what was too much, um, when you should back off, when you should put on the gas, et cetera? Um, it's a great question, Justin. I think, um, yeah, just thinking back, I feel really lucky. I had a really good support system around me. So I had a, my dad, I always say was kind of my second coach, but he was also very good at stepping back. Um, but he always, I, funny enough, um, you mentioned the car. He always said, your body is like a car and you need to fuel it for it to run well. So thinking about, you know, good fuels, but never, never saying don't have this or don't have that. That was never, ever. Um, and she was have what you want, but also think like you need good fats to, you know, get everything moving you need. So he was really probably instrumental on how I saw food. Cause I think that can be a really hard piece for, especially teenage girls and high, you know, college girls. And I, I think I also saw, you know, some people in my own family, my college roommate, um, another girl on my team with eating disorders and how that affected their um, coming from over stemming from overtraining and how eventually their performances crashed instead of, you know, I think the idea was they thought that they would get better and better and they did for a, a short amount of time, but eventually, you know, not eating enough, training too much, not getting their period, all of that just ended up taking a toll. So honestly, I think I just learned from the people around me what I, I needed to do to be healthy. Yeah. I mean, and that learning takes a lot of just sort of self-awareness, but also awareness of the, the culture and, you know, and the people around you, you know, thinking about that, two things kind of form a bridge to our conversation from last week. I mean, one is, you know, what is the purpose of sport and, and Jesse and Leah and Anya all spoke to, 
you know, hey, this is supposed to be about having fun, right? And, you know, Courtney, I noticed in your background, like you came into running relatively late and maybe that had something to contribute to you know, having a healthy relationship to sport and having it be fun. I'm sure it wasn't all fun all the time, but you know, talk about that experience of just having a diverse array of activities as a child. Um, yeah, I think my, I come from a family of four kids and both my parents were pretty athletic and never tried to live vicariously through us, but always wanted just to expose us to things. So we felt confident to try them later. So I did come, I, I was a swimmer and then I, you know, played tennis and I was, I, my still laugh that I think I'm a basketball player and not a runner, but, um, I, I started running my last year of high school. Seriously. I always ran track. I didn't actually run cross country most of high school because it's at the same time as basketball. But I, um, I think coming in later, I, I finished college being, feeling like there was more to give instead of a lot of friends who started really early and felt like that last year of college, they were just ready to be done. Um, so I, I feel like strength wise, one of my biggest strengths as a runner is my actual strength. I'm not the fastest, but I think, you know, having, played ball sports and done, um, having a lot of strength coming into running really helped with not overtraining, having a kind of maybe a, a different, it, I didn't define myself as a runner, which I think also helped. I, I felt like I was many other things. So I never felt like if it didn't succeed here, if I had, like, I didn't have to put, I mean, I obviously put everything into it, but if I didn't succeed here, there were other things I could do. No. I mean, that speaks a little bit to identity as well. I mean, we, we yeah. sort of have this system where, you know, particularly you throw in social media as well. Like we're all curating our identities on so many levels. And when you throw in sport as a child, like it's so sort of um, invigorating to find identity in sport or in any sort of affiliation. Um, and that that, you know, what was the role of identity for you? I mean, coming, when did you start to sort of think of yourself as a runner? Oh, probably not until really at halfway through my pro career. Um, really? Okay. Yeah. I know. I, I, I think about this a lot, how we're really, we really do identify with what we do, um, in our younger years. Um, but I think because of, because I was able to have a long career, because I still love to run and running is I think a lifelong sport, um, and just again, seeing friends that burned out, um, I am very aware to not have my kids specialize too early in anything. Um, especially a sport like running, that's really hard on your body until you're, you know, of a certain age, um, and certain strength. So yeah, that identity piece is really interesting. And I think when you specialize then that's who you are and it's hard to separate you know, the two things. And maybe that's when it starts to go, start to push too much and you start to overtrain. And, um, it's hard to say, it's hard to step back from it. Right. If I miss a run, I'm no longer a runner, right? If my identity is threatened in some way. Rob, let's talk about sort of this concept of specialization from your, from your perch. I mean, you got a lot of kids coming in, um, they either want to make the team or they want to make the next level. Their parents want them to make the next level. Um, we have a culture that sort of drives them towards specialization. You sort of feel like you're getting left behind if you don't, uh, focus on your sport 24 seven. Um, yeah. Talk about specialization and what you see in, in the, uh, in the waiting room and in your clinic. 
Yvette, uh, this concept of, of isolating yourself into one one topic, one one skill set, and, and specializing is it's been a, a growing trend, as as you know, and Courtney knows, with as being a coach, a mom, and as as an athlete, and probably she sees even more as a mom right now. Um, that that's been this this topic has been heavily debated all throughout uh, sports medicine, and it's a big topic in the American Medical Society sports medicine, and a lot of people take take the thought back to a paper that was written by a guy named Anders Ericsson out of, I think he's out of Eastern uh, Canada, where he talked about the 10,000 hour rule of, of deliberate practice. And, and that became uh, famous through uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers. And it happened to also kind of be in the time frame of, of Tiger Woods becoming the superstar that he became. And so the idea is the more you practice, the more you deliberately try to perfect your sport, your activity, your skill, you become an expert and dominate the world. And that that has spawned off into, well, I'm, instead of being a baseball player, a basketball player, and a football player, I'll become just a baseball player or, or, or just become a runner. And the sooner you start and perfect that, the better you'll be. Paradoxically, the data hasn't really shown that specialization actually is advantageous unless it's a sport like dance or gymnastics. Outside of that, specializing at an early age actually puts you at a higher likelihood of failing and giving up the sport earlier and also decreases your likelihood of making it professionally or making it to a national team. There's been multiple studies coming out of Australia and European countries, especially the Scandinavian countries, showing that specialization is actually a detriment to success of an athlete. And what we're seeing in the U.S. and why the doctors care about this is that we're we're seeing a, a substantial increase of overuse injuries and injuries that don't make any sense for a young athlete, such as osteoarthritis. We're seeing that now in 15, 16, 17-year-old athletes, which everybody would be appalled to hear that 20 years ago. So the game's changed and the outcomes have changed and the complexity is higher than ever. I mean, do you see, I mean, what do you see kind of as, some of the cultural factors. I mean, when you're, when you're dealing with parents and coaches, um, yeah, you know, how does that kind of play in your, what's your perception of this? I mean, the, 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 the medical research clearly shows that the, this trend towards specialization is misguided. Um, but why do you think it persists? What's, what's driving it? Yeah, it, it's a, a thought process that I've, I've, I've bantered back and forth on and I've, I've wrote and rewrote and deleted a, an op-ed called The Curse of Affluence that I probably mm. started writing 15 years ago. And, and I think about when I was a child in Missoula, we had YMCA sports and it was fairly inexpensive to play. Everybody did it. You played a few weeks of basketball, a few weeks of soccer. Maybe you had a, one or two track meets, but there wasn't a lot of stuff going on. Well, over time, as the world's become more affluent and the U.S. is definitely more affluent, we've had opportunities to have these travel leagues such as AAU basketball or, uh, or uh, softball that travels all around the, the nation, soccer's traveling. And there's this pressure, it seems, that as a parent has more cash in their pocket, that they should provide every good opportunity for their child. 
and they sign them up for all these fun activities. Why wouldn't you? When you're a kid, you didn't have those opportunities and now your kid has them. So provide those opportunities. Well, the big change that we've seen is that it goes from a volunteer mom or dad coaching to all of a sudden being a coach that's getting paid. And the expectations, or at least the perceived expectations, seem to have evolved a bit, where the parent has a good faith intentions to provide opportunity for their child. And now a paid coach has a perceived expectation that they have to push those kids and make them, quote unquote, successful. And then the poor kid on the other side is just obedient. Young kids are, are awesome. They just do what they're supposed to do and do what they're told and have fun. Well, at the end of the day, everybody's intention seems to be correct and, and altruistic. Unfortunately, we just have allowed opportunities for young kids that seem to be tough on their bodies at a younger age. And this is a tough one, but at the end of the day, the perfect scenario has come where the, the outcome for the young person is, is injury and, and breakdown. So, Courtney, let's talk about your experience with coaches. You're a coach yourself now, but, um, you know, coming up through this kind of culture, um, what kind of role did coaches play in helping you develop a, a good relationship with your running? Oh, I was really lucky. I, I had all really amazing and supportive coaches. Um, and it's just so fascinating to hear what Rob's saying because it, no matter how much, you know, the science and the literature is out there, it's, you know, it's hard, I think, for a lot of parents to listen to. Um, but as, as far as my experience, I had an amazing coach in college who's still coaching. I had a coach, um, Bob 70 for a year in Boston. And then my coach, Marta Timmons, who just passed away a couple of weeks ago. And she was, um, amazing. I mean, she would, if we were having a bad day, She'd say, go home, have a glass of wine and a hamburger, you know, like go relax, go eat. Um, there was, and I, you hear these kind of horror stories of coaches in, in college, especially where, um, every athlete gets weighed and, you know, there's a lot of pressure not to eat, but, um, <laughs> our team was maybe the only one at the Olive Garden that would like extra butter on the breadsticks. And, um, we were a relatively really healthy team. So I think for sure some, a piece of the, the social piece comes into that and the coach and the mentors. And I think I just got really, well, not just really lucky, but also like had parents who were involved to make sure I was with someone that was, you know, a healthy coach. Um, but I also was really fortunate to work with people that just had my best interests at hand and um, didn't have like understood that if I'm healthier, I'm going to be more successful. And sure. And we're, we're all sort of roughly the same age. Um, you know, and this is, this is, you know, according to Rob, you know, Rob's commentary and probably all three of our observations, like this is this sort of trend towards specialization and increasing expectations on our young children have increased over time. But Courtney, growing up in Canada, do you sort of, did, was there a sort of a cultural difference in, in sort of the role that sports played during childhood and development up there? I'm not sure if there's a, a cultural difference. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think more if there is now, but at the time there was definitely a, you don't want to go to the States for college or you're going to get hurt and you're not going to, and you're not going to come back healthy. That was definitely the, the most people's perception of going to school in the States. And that was like a sense that it was just 
too competitive down here or that they, they trained all wrong or like what was driving that kind of perception that don't go to the States or you're going to get hurt? I think it was that you go down there and you're just going to be a number and they just want you to perform and they're not going to care about you as a person. Like it was, um, you know, there were no athletic scholarships in Canada at the time. There are now some schools that have them, but it was, so it seemed, I think like more of a business. There were a lot of Canadians that didn't have great experiences in the States, but I think at the, like looking back, I remember thinking, well, they didn't go to program. Like they didn't do their homework, right? Like, they didn't make sure they went to a place that had, you know, healthy athletes or successful athletes. They went, they maybe just got the scholarship they could at a small school and it just, you know, it didn't work out. Um, so I, I never really bought into that, but there were, there were a lot of examples. And I think that was definitely the perception at the time. And so what made you feel good about making the choice to go to University of Michigan? Uh, well, my dad went there. <laughs> he played oh, hockey. well, that, that helped. <laughs> He played <laughs> hockey um, and basically in baseball, but yeah, he, um, so he was, yeah, he was a well-rounded athlete, but he, so that's what got me looking at schools in the States was my second last year of high school where I, I did kind of start to run a little bit more. He planted that seed of, have you thought about going to school in the States? You know, that, that probably will be more of an option in running and not in basketball. So we toured some schools. I went down to Wake Forest and UVA. I really liked, but they didn't like me, which was fine. <laughs> and, uh, and then we went to Michigan and I, I always say I had no idea what I was doing when I was, when I was 18. I mean, my, my dad was involved, but always kind of on the sidelines. Like it never felt like pressure. Um, but in, as I'm thinking as a parent, I'm very thankful for that because, I really didn't know what I was doing and I ended up at a program that was just a really great fit with a really, with a coach that really cared and a, and a, a team that was, you know, I, I got very lucky. I think, you know, some of that luck comes with research, but, but yeah, that's what kind of, so my dad had gone, but I also, um, my coach in, in high school said, do you want to go to the States and be a little fish in the big sea? Or do you want to stay in Canada and be a big fish in a little sea? And I very consciously remember thinking, and I didn't say this out loud, but I thought, I want to be a big fish in a big sea. A New Angle is brought to you by First Security Bank and Blackfoot, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. Hi, this is Steve Albini, and you're listening to A New Angle. And And so that, I think, was, I love the challenge of, like, I want to race new people every weekend. I want to, you know, be in this like more competitive environment. And so ultimately um, that was what pushed me to come to school in the States. Indeed. So a lot in there, Courtney, thanks for sharing. And and Rob, you're probably hearing what I hear there, like a a young athlete with ambition, but also with, you know, a a father in her life that's sort of helping her guide uh, and make good choices. Um, let's talk about the role of parents here. Like if you could get a message or two through to parents of young athletes, what, what would it be? What would you tell them? Oh boy. Um, <laughs> it's tough for me too, to say I haven't been, uh, fortunate enough to have a child yet. So I always feel like I'm casting a stone here. Um, did I hear it? Did I hear it yet in there, Dr. Rob? <laughs> yeah, that, that's some hope there, man. That's some hope. Okay. Wow. <laughs> you're, uh, you're a developing uh, human being. I am. I am. Eventually, maturity comes to my brain sometime. But 
Yeah, I, it, it is. It's tough to to really give great advice, except that maybe we don't have to go as hard as the perspective is 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 out there. And and I think about um, in especially a state like Montana, where we have amazing athletes and amazing outdoor. Uh, uh, people that can do crazy things in the mountains like you, Justin, and um, bump into Courtney Babcocks that you don't even realize that she's a superstar, but she's just a normal person in, in Missoula kind of of sorts that she's just so humble. And we have the flip side. We have uh, amazing animal athletes here as well in the, the, the horse world. And if you look at the way that, that horses are taken care of as athletes, compared to the way that young humans are taken care of as athletes, we're better at taking care of and training and developing our horses than we are at training and developing our young humans. And one of the big things with horses is they are, are progressed very slowly. And it's the biggest emphasis is not breaking that horse is not hurting that horse. And in humans, back to kind of what Courtney said about coming to the United States for college is you're just a number. Your extrinsic value is more important than your intrinsic value. And I think that's uh, one of the scary things that I see going forth is that we, we start to be such an outcome oriented uh, out outcome goal oriented uh, uh, sporting population that we forget about the intrinsic values of our, our young athletes. So if we can almost slow down the progression of our young athletes, I think they do better, they're safer, their interest in the sports, their quality of life in sport is better. Rob, that's fascinating with the horses. And um, I'm thinking of it from uh, a high school parent who's going to then say to you, yeah, I think potentially part of the problem is a lot of the colleges, I know hockey recruits by grade nine, you know, um, every sport has a different grade that you can, you can commit. So how do you, how do you balance that? Not overtraining, not push specializing, but committing to a college by, I mean, ninth grade, that's, you know, 14, 15 years old. Yeah, that's a wonderful question. And I guess the good news is, is that topic is being discussed at the NCAA. Um, the chief medical officer for the NCAA is a guy named Brian Hainline. He's a, uh, if you ever get an opportunity to listen to him, he's one of the most amazing physicians and speakers I think I've ever listened to. Um, but he's he's making that that conversation come to the NCAA as maybe we shouldn't be looking at 13 and 14 year old athletes uh, committing um, to a, a career five years out. Um, the other interesting thing is one of the biggest drivers of change in young athletes and taking care of young athletes is professional sports. The NBA has started a very aggressive campaign over the last three to four years to diversify sports, to have more sports sampling or have more multi-sport athletes. Because what they're finding is their development league is the young athletes in, in AAU basketball, high school basketball. And if they get broken at 12, 13, 14 years of age, even though they might be a superstar and a freak of athlete when they're 19 years of age and signing in the NBA, if they're broken, they're worthless. And the NBA simply is just tired of signing guys for nine, 10 million bucks and having them sit on the end of the bench. So the driving force, interestingly, is, is 
again, probably economics, something that Justin understands more than me. Uh, but the NBA is is saying we got to change the game because our products are now broken. Yeah, I mean, what um, what gets measured gets done, right? So <laughs> if all we're doing is measuring wins all the way down the chain, it creates a bunch of perverse incentives for coaches to not pay attention to the welfare of the athletes in the in the long term. You know, we frame this conversation uh, a lot in terms of of young athletes, but you know. Three of us are, are uh, middle-aged or aging athletes, however you want to describe it. And Courtney, I know you work uh, a lot with uh, kind of folks our age, middle-aged athletes that are just trying to find their way through some sort of a competitive or recreational relationship with sport. What do you see in terms of you know best practices for you know adult athletes with? Um, with training and balancing overtraining and including a stressful life in that uh, overall stress on the body and mind. Justin, I think you nailed it on the head in that last sentence of the stressful life included. You know, I think that plays a really big piece and I'm always trying to remind people that I train that you have to bring that piece in as a parent or not a parent or, but a full-time, you know, full-time job and all these things. We're not, you know, not pro athletes and this isn't a full-time job. So, um, those outdoors, those outside stresses really, um, even just traveling, you know, even if it doesn't feel stressful, that's going to take a toll, um, on your energy and your immune system. So trying to keep all of that in mind, I tend to, and I think, um, Rob knows this, I always err on the side of less is more. Um, I think you can get a lot done, without having to be out there for hours and hours and really paying attention to not going too hard and just, and getting into that overtraining mode. I think, like you said, it's a problem for teens, but I think it's also, you know, a lot of, uh, I'm going to say, be specific to runners in particular, but we're very motivated people. And there's a, you know, reason a lot of runners get up at five or six in the morning. So it can be easy to overdo it, but I feel like a big piece of my job is to remind them that like rest is good. I always say one step back is two steps forward. So just listening to your body and really being aware that you can't do what you did when you were 21 and, you know, that was all you kind of had in your life. But yeah. Do you feel like there's sort of ways of framing it or ways of communicating that are more, more effective than others? I mean, this is a topic that I've been sort of read about. I've been told about it. I've known the, the sort of science and truth for a long time, but yet it's it's still really hard for me to make good choices that are in the best interest of my long-term health. How do you get through to your clients? Gosh, that's a great question. Because I think as with most things, different things resonate for different people. A lot of people, if I'm writing a training plan and there's a rest day and they didn't rest, then, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it, but for a um, conversation. I, <laughs> yeah. it can be really individual, but I, I do feel like I, it's little breadcrumbs. I'm just, it try to keep the conversation and just keep little, it's all reminders, right? It's like you said, Justin, it's all things we know. It's just trying to implement them and be reminded that it's good for you in the long run that your body, I also just think in terms of like long-term health, you know, for your joints, I'm sure Rob sees a lot of this, um, just deterioration and not being able to run in 10 years. Like I would rather 
kind of remind people that if you run a little bit less now, then you'll probably have a longer running lifespan, right? Or health span. Yeah. And I think like pulling the lens out a little bit, like that's a bit of an unfair question in the sense that for a lot of folks, particularly, you know, those type A folks that want to get ahead, like having a coach, just having a coach could be the most powerful factor. Um, I know that the, you know, the periods of time where I've, I've had a coach in adult life, like very easy to say yes to a rest day. If it's written on the training plan that somebody else wrote and I trust their expertise and, you know, don't, you know, the sort of license to do less, um, given down from a a person in authority with experience and wisdom um, that had a lot of strength. Um, yeah, Rob, you've told me to rest many times and I just sort of listened and I was like, well, okay, I'll rest. Tell me how long I'm going to rest harder. I'm going to rest more. Um, and I mean, but that, that's kind of the culture, you know, there's one piece that we, we talked about a little bit there. And Courtney, you mentioned travel, uh, you know, and some other things like life stress, you know, and that's a hard thing for athletes to grasp, particularly aging athletes. You know, for me, like sport was my stress reliever for so much of my life. And it still is in many ways, but at some point the stress I was trying to relieve from life sort of felt additive to the whole mix. And and then I couldn't do my sport the way I wanted to do because of life stress. And like, how do you kind of, you know, how do you get through to athletes about, or just people about life stress and its role before they end up in the ditch? Yeah. Managing, managing stress and sport and life is, uh, is obviously a, a, a complicated process, but you know, we all have our, our go-to things that make us feel better. And I, and I think back of like when I was a kid, you know, the joke about, you know, having a bad breakup or whatever, everybody went to the, the, the tub of ice cream or, mm. you know, then we, we started to find all these vices that we used to manage stress. And we realized they weren't necessarily healthy, whether it was alcohol or smoking or the tub of ice cream. And so as our health is been more emphasized we thought well we'll we'll be healthier by managing our stress by going out and running so you have a bad day at work and stuff happens and you don't get along with your your work partners so you decide well i'm going to go do sentinel real hill repeats until i puke and then you go home and you're like wow actually work wasn't that bad because i just blew my mind out running hill repeats all afternoon and the, there's a, a shift, a reward system when we run and when we push ourselves that hard that does tend to make us feel better. And it can have that same addictive quality as some of the other things that people get addicted to in life. And it becomes kind of this, this complicated process where we, we started off with a very novel idea and a healthy idea of stress management that sometimes can get uncontrolled and and lead down a, a more problematic pathway, just like you mentioned, where your sport becomes just as stressful as your day-to-day life. Courtney, did you have some follow-up thoughts on that? Yeah, I think um, what you were talking a little bit about earlier too, where you can just go, you know, get out and go hard and do too much, um, goes back a little bit to what we had talked about um, before we started recording, but with Rob talking about getting injured early, I think right. for me, I was injured f- probably five of the first 10 years of my career. Um, I was hurt a lot. And so I think, you know, I, as a runner, I just learned, you know, you run through pain and I had to learn that 
good pain and bad pain. And I, so I, anyway, from that, I feel like that's always my cue for other people is you don't want to get to that point where you can't do what you love to do. And when you, Mm -hmm. when you do have, I see people who get hurt for the first time in their forties or even fifties and they don't know what to do. You know, it's just this, like, how can I not run? This is what I always do. Um, so having that early experience helps, but also I feel like I can, that's where I help as a coach is I've, I've had all those experiences and just trying to kind of remind that back to that kind of more isn't always better. Yeah. I mean, how did you learn that difference between good pain and bad pain? Like how did you develop that sense? And you, you talked about having great coaches, maybe coaches were a big part of it and, and, you know, and your parents as well. Um, yeah. How did, how did that work out for you? I think it was just a matter of, you know, not wanting to get hurt again. So it was a matter of experience. Um, and then understanding that it's okay. And I try and remind, this is kind of going back to people, you know, of all ages, like we're, we're not going to get out of shape in a couple of weeks. You know, it takes like two weeks before you'll even notice you might not feel that great for the first little bit coming back, but you're not going to get out of shape. And so it's, to prolong, to be able to run. I'd rather take two weeks off now than two months off later, you know, is always kind of my go-to and trying to remind people of that as well. Uh, I think the other big piece is not to compare. I mean, we hear this all the time, but it's so easy to do. And I think especially in a place like Missoula, where there are so many ultra runners and, you know, people that'll go out for, you know, Justin, like you, like hours and, and go for the runs, which is amazing. But I sometimes have to remind people, you don't have to run longer just because it feels like you should as you get older, because, you know, sometimes that's where people find more success or they feel better as they, you know, get going. My go-to question a lot of times is, do you want to run a marathon or do you feel like you should run a marathon? You know, Mm -hmm. there's really trying to just check in with yourself instead of just doing what you feel like everybody else around you is doing. Yeah. I mean, not to mention the effects of social media as well uh, on top of all that. And, you know, we've talked about identity a little bit. Um, it's heavy stuff. It's tough to navigate. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, Rob, so we started off with a scientific definition to the extent there is one of, of red S. Um, we didn't talk a lot about what we know about, get, you know, recovering from red S. I mean, what's the science, the, the best science telling us about how to you know, if you find yourself in this energy deficit, uh, how do you how do you get out, and how how long does it take? It, good question. Once you're in the hole, is uh, I guess the depend or the the duration of time depends on how deep the hole is that mm-hmm. you're in. If there's somebody like Courtney who is when she was running had great coaches and multiple people around that can kind of have really positive feedback, especially as a place like the University of Michigan where there's athletic trainers and medical staff and Uh, multiple people watching. If you have a bad race, maybe somebody checks in sooner. If you're somebody that's a, you know, like Justin, where you were a couple of years ago, training on your own and kind of trying to manage a whole bunch of things in life, maybe somebody doesn't see you uh, start to fall off the edge as quickly and you end up a little deeper. So depending on where, how far deep you get in into this kind of red S or overtraining concept, the time out of it can be much longer. And where we are right now is that the the metabolic changes, so the the hormonal changes in the body that start to adapt with this this overtraining, overreaching concept, 
is that you, you have to correct those things before you get back to normal. And the only way to get that stuff back to normal, unfortunately, at this time is a very simplistic rest and increasing that fuel intake. So getting increasing caloric intake. And that is back to kind of that stress concept is psychologically catastrophic to the mass majority of athletes and the driven athlete, as Courtney talked about in the runners. So there's some good data showing that if you can increase people's calorie intake to a, a horrible calculation of around 45 kilocalories per kilogram of fat-free body mass per day. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. You, you <laughs> save you yourself. On the whiteboard? <laughs> yeah, right. So, so it's, this, it's a very simple mathematical tool, but unfortunately, it's extremely complicated to try to figure all that out. And it's, it's just brutal to get people back. So this, the, the, main, the main concept is, is trying to find out how do we manage the the psychological and the sociological stressors of being overtrained so that the athletes and, and coaches and parents and everyone can buy into that together to get the health back. And because when the health is there, the athlete can come back to ripping legs off. But if the, the health isn't there, they're always going to be subpar and never be quite where they want to be. And so in this sort of formulation, it, it, it is, is any calorie a calorie? I mean, Courtney, I'm sure you've got plenty of folks coming to you saying, hey, you know, should I go paleo or should I do this or that with my nutrition? Or, you know, Rob, are there, are there better foods to eat or not eat? Like what's, what's your kind of advice with, uh, with fueling that people can kind of take away and act on? That's a good question. I think there's just recently the United States, I think the, the paper that just came out guesstimated that around 55% of the United States is on some sort of specialized diet. And, and that can be because of, of perception of, of what's a quality food and not a quality food. Some of it's because of allergies and some of it's because of uh, social reasons. Um, so anytime that you're being put on or you put yourself onto a special food program, it's harder to get an adequate amount of calories into the body. So if you think about uh, why fat-free foods were so successful in weight loss when they first started in the early 90s is because people didn't know how to eat fat-free foods, so they ended up with caloric restriction. Same thing happens when people go on to the Atkins diet or protein-only diets. So as of now, the, the general simplistic concept is to eat the majority of your plate should be fresh vegetables or vegetables, and we do want to increase our uh, our protein intake with endurance athletes being okay to have about a milligram of, or excuse me, a gram of, of protein per kilogram of body mass. And, and that's a lot more than what most, uh, um, athletes, uh, think of. So long and the uh, short of it is, is basically we need to eat that well-balanced diet that we all know about. And if we have a specialized diet, we have to make sure that we supplement uh, somehow those, those nutrients that we might be lost in, in our, our specialization of our foods. Yeah, Courtney, how do you navigate that as a coach when you got clients asking you questions about, you know, should I try this diet, that diet, and whatever? I think, you know, just the well-balanced diet is, and I don't even like to use the word diet, just eating sure. well, right, is just is going to be your your best avenue for success. Um, I am, I'm not a fan of, you know, keto and all the different, um, I appreciate that people are vegan and vegetarian. Um, I think it's really hard 
for an endurance athlete, especially to get enough protein with some of the, or enough carbs with a lot of the new, newer diets. So Mm -hmm. I, I am really, I really try and encourage, I just try and remind people that as a runner, as an endurance athlete, you really, you need to have carbs. That's a really um, important piece of the puzzle. And Rob, it's interesting that you mentioned that I'm assuming was that per day, the protein to body weight per kilogram? Yeah, that's, that's correct per day. So a gram of protein per uh, kilogram of uh, body mass per day. Per day. Yeah. And that's something just recently I've been trying to track and encourage my athletes to really make sure they're getting enough protein at every meal. Cause as Rob said, a lot of people don't get enough protein, but yeah, I, I did the whole, I mean, I think some of them, like the whole 30 is a good reset. Um, I did it. And I even said, I was not going to have, I wouldn't do no grains. I would do no wheat. And I still accidentally just didn't get a lot of grains in. And I jumped on the treadmill for a tempo run and I could not run more than probably five minutes at my normal pace. Mm. Um, so, you know, it really, it'll show in your performance if you're not just getting a great, a good well-rounded diet or balanced meals. Indeed. It goes back to your father's wisdom, right? Of of your body being like a car and, you know, you need good fuel. Um, Rob, follow up thought. Yeah. The, the quick thought I even wanted to say is that one of the shocking things, especially in the running population, cycling population, where we, we tend to have this, this kind of power to weight ratio concept of how thin am I to how fast I could be. And sometimes we get a little bit lean on our calorie intake. Interestingly, the, the more you eat over time, your body will start to adapt to burn that fuel. So I almost think of the, the human body, like a very poor fuel efficiency sports car, when we're really well trained, we're, we are kind of getting up into that Ferrari area. And if we do everything correctly, we can dump tons of fuel into ourselves and maybe only be getting two or three miles to the gallon. We oh. just rip apart that fuel and utilize it to go very, very fast. If we start to calorie restrict in this relative energy deficiency and sports concept, Unfortunately, what our body does is it starts to think that we are starving to death, so it becomes extremely fuel efficient and becomes more like the the Toyota Prius where we get 70, 80, 90 miles to the gallon, and it starts to store that fuel differently and doesn't burn it as quickly. So we can actually see this paradoxical weight gain when we're extremely undernourished and, and in that low energy balance and actually change how our body looks and actually have more fatty tissue. So it becomes a very complicated, complex sociologic battle with how much food to take and how much uh, uh, energy to put into your body sometimes. Indeed. Well, this stuff is super difficult to navigate, and I am happy that we have two uh, experts and great people like you in our community to help us navigate this stuff. And, and you know, thanks for coming on the podcast to talk about it. Um, Courtney, starting with you, people want to learn more about you and your coaching services. Where can folks find you online? Oh, my company, thanks, Justin, is um, Key Running. So it's keyrunning.com. I also have um, retreats, which is keyrunretreats.com. But if you go to either website, they'll take you to the other one. Yeah, I really just love getting getting people together. As you know, it's always easier to push yourself or even just things like this. Learn. We just talk a lot in class about different things to, you know, 
help each other out and push each other when there's like a group together. So I feel super lucky to, to be in this environment in Missoula and just work with really amazing people. Indeed. And Rob over at Bone and, Bone and Joint, how can people, uh, how can people find you? Yeah, uh, I'm at Missoula Bone & Joint. I'm unfortunately there more than uh, sometimes I want to be. And when I'm not there, I'm out still pretending that I'm uh, a wannabe athlete or watching somebody like Courtney and all of her great runners as a super fan. Um, you also can reach me at, uh, at uh, Rob Amrine at MissoulaBoneAndJoint.com. And when, where are we going to be able to read this yet to be published uh, opus about yeah. the curse of opulence or the curse of uh, affluence? Uh, I, I need some arrogance first. I, I lack a little confidence on my writing skills. It's uh, a great name. Well, writing is not one of those disciplines where you can get overtrained. So I suggest just <laughs> do more of it and it'll get done. Um, Rob, Courtney, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. And um, we'll see you down the road. Thanks, Justin. Thanks, Justin. Thanks, Courtney. Great, great input. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. A New Angle is underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot with support from the University of Montana College of Business and Consolidated Electrical Distributors. AJ Williams is our producer. Jeff Ament, John Wicks, and VTO made our music. And Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. If you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. If you like what you heard, tell your friends about it. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.